This episode of Eat the Rules is brought to you by You on Fire. You on Fire is the online group coaching program that I run that gives you a step-by-step way of building up your self-worth beyond your appearance. With personalized coaching from me, incredible community support, and lifetime access to the program so that you can get free from body shame and live life on your own terms. Get details on what's included and sign up for the next cycle at summerinandin.com forward slash you on fire. I'd love to have you in that group. This is Eat the Rules, a podcast about body image, self-worth, anti-dieting and intersectional feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 189, and I am interviewing Nick McDermott, fat activist and intersectional feminist. We talk about how fat phobia is rampant in the eating disorder recovery world, the harm that this does, what they can do better, the importance of reclaiming the word fat, how to navigate acceptance and recovery with chronic pain, and more. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 189. I want to give a shout out to Chocoholics Are Us. That's a great handle, by the way, who left this awesome review. Where have I been? I can't stop looking at people I know and think they are missing out. They are missing out on the freedom of forgetting about diets and food choices. Summer, you've set me free. I'm a long way from complete body acceptance neutrality. And my number one goal is still finding stale cookies in the cupboard. But Summer, you've got me. Thank you. Keep rocking on. Thank you so much, Chocoholics Are Us. Sorry, that name just is, it's great. It's really good. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. If you haven't already done so, you can leave a review for the show by going to iTunes and search for Eat the Rules and then search, um, click ratings and reviews and click to leave a review that helps others to find the information that you're learning here and to support anti-diet culture. (laughs) Uh, You can also help out the show by subscribing and you can do that by hitting the subscribe button via whatever platform you use to listen to this podcast, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, any of those things. And if you haven't already done so, definitely grab the free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. This episode with Nick is really, really great. I've been wanting to talk to Nick for a while, and um, we were finally able to connect and have a really amazing conversation. And it's such an important conversation because Nick shares her her lived experience of being in a in a fat body and the challenges of what that's like recovering from an eating disorder and how to try to navigate that and and really what can be done better and what she does to practice acceptance and and living unapologetically and she's really challenges a lot of the status quo and a lot of the messages that are out there even a lot of the messages that are out there around eating disorder recovery right now she challenges a lot of those on her Instagram account I'm always learning a lot just by following everything that uh, that she puts out there. So I think that you're really going to enjoy this interview. Let's get started. 
Hello, Nick. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here. It's been a, a work in progress, but I'm so excited to to connect with you and to be on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Well, I'd love you to start out just by talking a little bit about your your story and what brought you to the work of fat activism. Look, I think this this could be an entire episode in and of itself, but uh, in short, I came to fat activism through my own experience being a fat person and also experiencing an eating disorder as a fat person and really recognizing and experience sorry experiencing all of the injustices that come with being a fat person with an eating disorder and, you know, being somebody who has been affected by fat phobia and the rampant weight stigma that exists within the eating disorder community, you know, I I recognise that that is such a huge issue in in and of itself. Uh, And so my fat activism is a way of really kind of sticking it to the status quo and really talking about and making commentary about the ways in which fat phobia harms those of us in bigger bodies. And yeah, I suppose I, I, I didn't kind of I didn't kind of set out to to sort of land myself in a fat activist uh, kind of position, but it's just something I think that kind of happened. And as I started to explore my own relationship with my body and my own relationship and I guess cut my, my proximity to fatness and my relationship with fatness, it really it grew from there, I suppose. Yeah, it's it it's it's kind of strange how I ended up, you know, in the position that I'm in at the moment in kind of being such a, an activist for those of us in bigger bodies. Um, it, it kind of happened gradually and then suddenly. And yeah, I kind of wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. And I, I have so many more questions based on on what you just said. And I think, um, you know, we're going to talk a bunch about of more about uh, yeah, just just your experiences, like your lived experience and, and specifically like what the eating disorder recovery community needs to do better. But at first, like to start by understanding, you know, what your experience was like with an eating disorder, like recovering from an eating disorder. Yeah, it's, I think when you when you're recovering from an eating disorder, in a fat body, it's, it's ridiculously hard because everything around you is telling you that the body that you're recovering into is wrong and you're recovering into a world that just doesn't make room for fat bodies, that's not accommodating, that's not accessible, that, you know, around every corner there's, you know, a a doctor or a psychologist or a public health promotion or, you know, somebody else within the eating disorder community that's kind of gatekeeping what, you know, the, the eating disorder community should look like. You know, there's there's seemingly no room for fat people in the eating disorder narrative. And that's really hard when you're recovering into a world that just 
you know, is, is, is telling you that your body is wrong. It's difficult to... It, it's difficult to access services. It's difficult to be believed. It's difficult to to have people take you seriously in terms of you know your eating disorder and your your suffering with that. You know, I remember. I remember being deep in the throes of my eating disorder and going to the doctor and, you know, I was there kind of every few days sort of thing and, you know, going to the doctor and he weighed me at that point and, you know, I remember distinctly him saying to me, oh, you know, I I don't need to worry until you're at, you know, X weight. And, you know, the, the eating just sort of raging in my head was like, okay, game on. But, you know, these, uh, these uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm getting so fired up that I've lost my words. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Take your time. <laughs> Uh, but I guess these experiences, you know, they they aren't, you know, they aren't isolated experiences. These are happening to people all over, you know, and particularly for people in marginalised bodies, it's really hard to get taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and you can tell me if you if you want to talk about this or not. Like, were you ever in a, tr- a treatment facility or group where you were like where you maybe felt like you were where that sort of enhanced your experience of marginalization, like, or, or did, were you able to access care where you felt like it was more inclusive? Look, I was, I was very privileged in the fact that I was able to access an eating disorder day program on a number of occasions, but <laughs> that eating disorder day program didn't come with, you know, it didn't come with uh, the most inclusive treatment. So, you know, an example from that was, uh, you know, uh, we were we were given um, gowns to change into on weigh days, and uh, they were hospital issued, supposedly one size fits all gowns, and the gown didn't even cover my body. Like I couldn't even do it up. You know, my my butt was hanging out. Like I just, I couldn't even do it up. So I was so exposed on way days and, you know, it, it was an experience that I felt completely humiliated, exposed, dehumanized, and so incredibly ashamed. And, you know, that's, that's just one example. Another example was, you know, at morning tea time, everybody else got, you know, a certain type of morning tea and I had an apple put in front of me because I, my weight was supposedly trending upwards and I was in a fat body at the time. So, you know, that difference in kind of me getting a piece of fruit and everybody else in smaller bodies getting a certain type of morning tea, it was just, it was just horrendous. And not to mention, you know, the, the, the microaggressions that are just so ingrained in each eating disorder treatment in the way that we talk about weight and bodies and, you know, the way in which we kind of casually just throw in the idea that, you know, eating disorder professionals won't make people quote unquote too fat, you know, and we won't let you kind of quote unquote get fat. And all of that is said in 
in treatment for everybody to hear. So, you know, it's, it's yeah, it just, it, it's like the eating disorder landscape, fat phobia is just so enmeshed in the eating disorder landscape. And, you know, I, I just... I, I just don't know what we need to do in order to, you know, in order to change that. It's like the entire eating disorder landscape just needs to be shaken on its head, tipped upside down, you know, and we start again because the way that things are at the moment just isn't working and it's really damaging and it's really just, yeah, it's really dehumanizing for people in marginalized bodies. Yeah, it sounds like it's just, it's, so harmful and it's it's like no it's kind of a miracle that you would recover in that type of a a setting where it's it's really just kind of you know deepening those those really hard feelings of shame around you know around your body that's just I've heard a lot of yeah stories from people just about how thought phobic the eating discover eating eating discovery eating disorder world is and um like you said, it does, it does sound like it needs like a complete, like it needs to just be completely burned to the ground and rebuilt. Yeah. I mean, I, I was wanting to say, let's just burn it all to the ground, but I thought that, <laughs> might, thought that might've been a, a, a bit of a, bit of a stretch, but I'm glad that you said that because that, that's exactly it. You know, like let's just burn it to the ground because, you know, in eating disorder treatment or in eating in the eating disorder landscape, like every time something fat phobic is said or done, it really just upholds this system of harm. And it really hurts those, you know, whose bodies come under constant scrutiny and policing and surveillance. And, you know, we we have that out in the world and yet eating disorder treatment completely mirrors that. So something needs to change. Yeah, like you'd think that the foundation of eating disorder recovery should be addressing internalized fat phobia and oppression. <laughs> you, you would you would hope. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, maybe I've just been in this world for too long, but I'm just like, like, but I'm like, how do, how do other people not see this? But I totally recognizing that, you know, it is it is so it's systemic, really, within that within that space. Absolutely. And I think, you know, particularly in the eating disorder treatment that I was in in the day program, it ran on the premise of um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So we were really looking at this like top down approach in terms of treatment and top down approaches and CBT, it just doesn't give room for the systemic issues that people face. It doesn't give room for really understanding what it's like to live in a marginalized body or occupy a marginalized identity. And there's an issue there. There's such a disconnect between the ways in which the eating disorder treatment community, you know, does their treatment, so to speak. And we've got so many marginalized people out here experiencing eating disorders, but with no way to really unpack the really important, the really important things like, you know, like fat phobia, like, you know, how racism, how sexism, how transphobia really affects a person in eating disorder recovery. It's like this top-down approach of CBT is just solely focused on behavior change and addressing the thoughts of the eating disorder. But that's that's great. It's all well and good. But if we're also not addressing 
you know, the the oppression alongside this, then, you know, what the hell are we doing? Mm-hmm. And the and like and like the internal bias of the providers too. Like I imagine. And I don't know, but I imagine most of the people that you were getting treatment from were probably probably held more like a greater amount of privilege and therefore a greater amount of of that of that bias. Yeah, that's an assumption. I mean, oh, oh, totally. And it's it's 100 percent correct. You know, the the you know, the staff at the day program that I was at all held a significant amount of body privilege. And, you know, being a fat person in treatment and being, quote unquote, treated by people with significant amounts of privilege, I, I just it was really hard to reconcile. Yeah, really hard to reconcile what treatment and recovery would look like given that I had no one or nothing to what's the word I'm looking for yeah no, I guess no one or, or nothing that that could tell me that it was okay to be in the body that I was in yeah yeah which should be so which would be just you know think of how validating and affirming that would be to have that Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, I think, for, for people in fat bodies that, you know, you just, you just don't have anybody that tells you that your body is not the problem. How did you come to that recognition though? Like how, like did, did you, how did you find fat activism? I guess would be the question that I'm trying to ask. I think given that, you know, fat was a word that, you know, continued to hold so much stigma. And the fact that, you know, whether we like it or not, the world equates fat with bad and fat with lazy and unworthy or, you know, whatever it is. And, you know, coming to a realization and an understanding on a really deep level that this is the way that society has shaped our beliefs. And, you know, knowing that fat was a word that was always fraught with so much fear and so much anxiety that I grew up being so afraid of my own body. And I mean, it's, it's, it's hard in terms of thinking about how I came to reclaim the word, as I said before, like it, it didn't, it didn't kind of happen. Like it, it didn't kind of happen as some huge epiphany. It was like, okay, I am really just going to try and change my relationship with the word. And, you know, how is it to look at myself as a fat person? I really just had to start looking for people whose bodies looked like mine and people whose whose bodies didn't look like mine. Really just had to curate my social media feeds in terms of cutting out and blocking and, you know, deleting every single person, every single company, etc. that made me feel horrible about my body. And I guess I I really had to change my perception of the word fat and see it as uh, something liberatory in terms of calling myself fat rather than a form of punishment and, you know, a, a degrading statement and really start thinking about being really unapologetic for taking up space 
Yeah, it, it as as I said, it, it it happened kind of gradually and then suddenly, and I had to keep repeating to myself, you know, there is nothing wrong with my body, and my body is not a problem. I really refused to make my body the site of everybody else's fear, disgust, and beliefs that they had about fat bodies. I just I decided that I would no longer hold that. That wasn't my issue. That was the issue of other people and really separating myself from that. But also I had to wrestle with the shame, the sadness, the anger and the grief about letting go of, you know, the quote unquote ideal body and just really sit with myself in a place of compassion. Yeah, which is so important to do to like allow those feelings to be there because there's a lot, a lot wrapped up in it, like way more so when you're when you're in a marginalized body, for sure. Yeah, of course, of course. So reclaiming the word fat was obviously like a, a huge piece of of your recovery. What else helped you get to the place where you're at now where you are so unapologetic? I think it's I think it's a continuous process like I and I think that was something really important to recognize as well that you know getting to a point of being unapologetic in my body as it is now it's not an end point it will always be it will always be a process and I think really coming to the realization and the understanding to that you know I still wake up and I still have bad body moments, you know, I I will still wake up and I will wrestle with my body. And it just, I think coming to an understanding that, you know, it's, it's this kind of simultaneous push and pull, but the space between the quote unquote bad body moments, you know, gets larger and larger. So yeah, it, it, I think just understanding the ways in which, you know, the ways, uh, the ways in which my relationship with my body has changed over time. And yeah, really just, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know, actually, like, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of, it's hard to kind of reflect on. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a strange one. I think, as I said, like, it just doesn't happen it doesn't happen over like I hate to use the cliche like it won't happen overnight but yeah well I think you what you sort of spoke to there was that it's it's really an ongoing practice versus a destination or something that just like you know switched on and that was it it's like it's it's an on it's an ongoing way of showing up for yourself that's that's what I heard in what you said Thank you so much for summarizing my like word vomit there. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't mean it like that. I just. (laughs) No, no, no. I totally appreciate it. It's like early in the morning here and my brain just hasn't switched on yet. So that's like a perfect, um, that's like a perfect summary of what I was trying to say. So excellent. (laughs) For everyone listening, Nick got up at, I don't even know. What time did you get up? It's 7am there now. So you must have woken up earlier than that yeah so so I got up at I got up at 6 a.m to try and settle down my kitten who tends to want to jump all over me while I'm on like Skype or Zoom calls so yeah I've, I've been 
been up since since six. So yeah, so, so yeah, and I, I haven't had coffee yet. So definitely, um, yeah, I I would not be good for recording anything at seven a.m. So I admire <laughs> admire your ability. You you you. I forgot. That's how good you sound. Just put it that way. Like I forgot that it was so early there until you reminded me, and then I was like, oh wow, no, you still sound really good. So just coming back to the the idea of it being like this, you know, kind of like practice, is there anything that you sort of specifically do to to help yourself every day from in 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 the way of just like, you know, solidifying your recovery or showing up for yourself or or, you know, being more accepting of yourself? I tend to kind of do things that make me feel good, you know, and whether that's like whether that's kind of an evening skincare routine, that's something that I kind of use as a bit of a mindful moment, you know, just kind of connecting with my body and being really kind of compassionate and gentle while I'm doing my skincare routine or, you know, I will sit down and kind of listen to an audio book or, yeah, it's it's not I guess what I'm trying to say is that the practices that I I do aren't necessarily specifically related to my body. It's I guess it's kind of more on par with you know caring myself caring for myself in the most compassionate way. Um and whatever that looks like for people is you know, whatever it looks like for people. For me, it's about, you know, doing my skincare. It's about kind of sitting down and, you know, just kind of chilling out, listening to music, watching something on Netflix. One of the most important things, though, I think is community. And, you know, I, I've i built a, a, an online kind of community over the years with, you know, people who share my experience and knowing that, you know, if something really shitty has happened over social media, you know, I get trolled constantly, you know, I get pummeled in the comments of, you know, posts and such. So I know that if something happens in that respect, I can go to my community and just have a vent and I know that people have got my back. And so that's been a really important thing in maintaining, you know, my, you know, my practice of, of kind of showing up and my practice of you know knowing that and remind knowing and reminding myself because I think there's one thing of of knowing and there's one thing of you know really really kind of feeling that on an emotional level so yeah I think just continuing to continuing to show up despite the shittiness as well anger I guess anger is something that tends to fuel a lot of my social media posts um and I often get told that you know I'm far too angry and you know I need to kind of tone it down and etc etc but that anger for me is about action and that is about activism so you know feeling that anger and getting angry about things is actually really important and that's been a huge part of my process in you know showing up and taking care of myself Mm -hmm. yeah well and like for someone you know this I think it's very sexist to sort of think like oh you're too angry like that is that you know because as as a woman like that's you're not supposed to be like you got to be nice you got to say it nicely like you got to tone yourself down and so 
anyone who sort of says that to you, it's obviously it's coming from their own kind of sexist belief system that it's or it's like shedding light on their own privilege, which is uncomfortable probably as well. Yeah, of course. And, you know, like their own internalized misogyny, it's yeah, it's it's. It's wild to think about the amount of times that I get told that I'm too angry. Oh, <laughs> um, wow. It, it, tends to, it tends to kind of be a bit of a laughable moment, you know, when that happens. And I, I tend to, you know, I tend to kind of look at those comments about being too angry and think, yeah, okay, I'm doing something right because it's pissing people off. <laughs> and, yes. y- you know, if I'm, if I'm pissing people off, then they're obviously reacting to what I'm doing and what I'm saying in such a way that it makes them uncomfortable. And I don't set out to make people uncomfortable, but I do. And that's, that's a really, I know, I know that that sounds, you know, I I know that that might come across as really horrible, but I want people to wrestle with that discomfort and I want people to think about where that discomfort is coming from. I want people to really question why it is that they feel really uncomfortable or confronted with the material that I put out there. Yeah, that's so that's the I that I yeah, it's really interesting to hear you talk about it. I I've always just thought that you're very honest. Like you're just very uh, so I, I you know, I I never really attached a lot of emotion to it more just like on like you're very like you say what's on your mind it's very like it's like that's that's what you're thinking (laughs) and and obviously like in a way that is is you know what like well thought out and from from the perspective of like you're speaking from your own experience and and you can tell that your purpose is really to help others try to see things differently yeah I would hope so and you know I, I mean my social media has grown over the years and I think the purpose of my social media has kind of changed a lot over the years and you know when I I, I mean I'm a social worker by trade and I was working in the eating disorder field and it kind of just really burnt me out so I left and I stopped you know I stopped direct practice so you know I don't I don't work as a social worker anymore and I think that really changed the trajectory of my social media where I was more able to sit in this pocket of lived experience and sit in this pocket of talking specifically about you know lived experience and yeah I, I I found that I didn't have to censor myself and I didn't have to tone things down because I wasn't like I wasn't kind of governed by this professional responsibility to frame things nicely so yeah I think that I think that was actually a really huge um a really huge change for me in being able to sit in this pocket of lived experience and just say things that were on my mind without having to tone it down or, you know, think about, okay, how is this going to come across? I just, I just say it. Well, and you're entitled to your, your feelings too. Like, you know, we all are and, and the the anger is totally justified for sure. Yeah. There's just, there's, there's a lot of anger there for sure. I can, and I, and in every, you have every right to feel that way. Yeah. And I think that's, I think that's something, you know, as you said, like as women, we're told to tone it down and it's almost like, you know, we can be seen, but not heard. And 
you know, that's certainly something that's in the back of my mind when, you know, I am creating content for social media. It's like, ugh, how is this going to come across? And so, you know, there's uh, behind a lot of probably my most angry material, you know, is that questioning in my head of how is this going to come across? And so, you know, it's not just a, a kind of knee jerk reaction of putting a social media post out there because something has kind of pissed me off. Yes, there's a lot of that. But, you know, on on some occasions as well, there is that questioning of, oh, should I be doing this? So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing it. One of the things that I wanted to ask you about as well, just as we're talking about um, like navigating recovery and acceptance is specifically like what your advice is to someone who's trying to do that with chronic illness and pain, because I know that's something that you've you've talked about before. Yeah, look, uh, it's uh, the uh, <laughs> it's it's such a huge topic that um you know I think and particular particularly for people in marginalized bodies I think that that's something that you know chronic pain tends to be attributed to your weight or your body size as opposed to you know uh, as opposed to a physical health issue in and of itself you know and the fact that so many medical professionals out there attribute chronic pain to body size just speaks to the level of fat phobia that's out there in the medical community. In terms of, you know, people experiencing chronic pain, I would recommend if you're not getting the treatment that you deserve, if you're not getting respectful treatment, if you're not getting treatment that you know, is free of fat phobia, if you're not getting treatment where you feel like your body is not the problem, if you can seek treatment elsewhere, do so. You don't need to be subjected to fat phobic health professionals. Um, You deserve so much more than that. It can really, it can really beat you down. And, you know, I've, I've been there, I've been beaten down and gaslighted and completely and utterly humiliated and ashamed by doctors and psychologists that I was working with throughout my chronic pain journey. And yeah, it's, it's hard. It's hard to advocate for yourself, but yeah, I would really recommend that, you know, if you've got somebody that you can um if you've got somebody that can go to appointments with you that can help you advocate that's something I highly recommend as well I know that there are some resources out there online that many people have put together I believe that Reagan Chastain has put together a a little snippet of things that you can take to the doctors about working from a health at every size perspective so you know if that's something that you can access and take to your appointments, I highly recommend. But, you know, in terms of your own, you know, in terms of your own kind of understanding and experience of chronic pain, you know, you know your body best. Um, You know, you are the expert of your own body. So allowing yourself to rest when you need to, allowing yourself to cancel plans when you need to, trying not to feel guilty for saying no, Sometimes we'll need to ask for help, you know, 
don't have to suffer through excruciating and intolerable pain. It deserves to be treated and you deserve to be believed. Um, you're allowed to disagree with your treatment team and you're allowed to search for different treatment options knowing that you know your body best. That's so helpful. I think, I think especially like that permission to... Well, everything really, but it's just like the permission to really rest and the permission to find different providers. I think, I feel like there's just, you know, because of the sort of like grind nature of our culture and this pressure to, you know, always be like, you know, doing things. And then there's also the pressure to just be sort of compliant with, with authority. <laughs> so like all that stuff makes it hard to, you know, to rest or to find other treatment providers. So but that's like, that's really helpful. Because I think it is, it's such an, it's one of those like hard forms of self care, but it's so necessary. Um, especially, obviously, like in the in the context of chronic pain. Yeah, of course, of course. I, you know, I went through a stage where I completely fired my, my GP, my doctor, and the psychologist that I was working with, because I was just continued to like, I was, it was, yeah, it was a horrible experience. I was being, you know, gaslighted every appointment. Um, you know, they were attributing my chronic pain to my mental health issues. Um, you know, I was led to believe that I was only in excruciating pain because my depression was so bad. And, you know, this this was the back and forth. So not only was my chronic pain attributed to my body size, it was also attributed to my mental health. And so, you know, at one point, my, my doctor and my psychologist were kind of double teaming me and telling me that I needed to be in hospital for my mental health because it was declining to the point of needing, you know, a higher level of care being in hospital. But in actual fact, I just wasn't being believed. I just wasn't being listened to. And my chronic pain was just not being treated. And because I was going to appointment after appointment after appointment, like absolutely hysterical crying, like somebody help me, that was just put down to my mental health declining and you know needing to be in hospital so yeah if if providers are doing that to you you're allowed to fire them you don't need to put up with that shit at all it's incredibly unfortunate that these things happen but they do and yeah you you don't need to put up with that yeah wow that's so awful so awful I mean, obviously, there's so many more things I could ask you, but we've we're sort of already gone a little bit over what I said we would record. Um, so I, you know, I'm going to wrap it up here. But I where I want you to tell people where they can find more of you. My my hub, so to speak, um, is my Instagram account. So uh, that is at nick.mcdermid on Instagram. Uh, you will find links to my YouTube channel from Instagram as well. But the majority of my work resides on Instagram and then the branches kind of, yeah, you can you can find from there. Yeah. Great. I'll link to those in the show notes too. Nick, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you and I appreciate you sharing so much of your story and giving such really helpful advice and, and just everything that you're, that you're doing out there. Cause I know it's, um, it's, it's not easy dealing with all the, the sort of pushback. 
Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's always lovely to be able to share lived experience in such a way. So I really appreciate uh, the time. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nick. Rock on. I love having a podcast because I get to talk to so many interesting people that I would usually not get the opportunity to sit with and chat with for, you know, 30 or 45 minutes or however long some of these interviews are. And I just always learn so much and it's a cool part of my job. I like it. I like it. Hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. You can find the links and resources mentioned in this episode at summerinandin.com forward slash 189. Thank you so much for being here today. I'll talk to you soon. Rock on. I'm Summer Inanin, and I want to thank you for listening today. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Summer Inanin. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts, search Eat the Rules, and subscribe, rate, and review this show. I would be so grateful. Until next time, rock on.